Our passage this morning comes from the book of Mark, if you'd like to turn there with me. We'll be starting in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. The word of God says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for another Lord's Day and this opportunity to hear from your word. We ask that this morning you would help us to apply the word to our minds, our hearts, and our hands. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Mark, but I'm going to push beyond it. If you want to jot down a couple of passages, Romans 13, 1 through 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, and 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. I'm not going to turn there every time, but those are passages that fill out for us what we're going to look at. And then thirdly, we'll, we'll come back and land in Mark, and I hope... I. We'll, we'll see the point, the emphasis that, that Jesus is driving home to us from this passage. So we've seen Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, right? We're in the Passover week, and so we've seen the events that have taken place as he's come to the temple. Tension has, has really ramped up. And there are seven conflicts or uh, different confrontations that we're going to see between Jesus and the religious leaders. This is the second one that pops up this week, and it's really dealing with the same thing that we dealt with last week, and that is the idea of authority, the exousia of Jesus, that word that pops up again and again and again. If you're looking for it as you come through Mark, you'll see that is the defining quality of Jesus that people keep finding so astounding, that they're confronted with, they're amazed by, they're offended by. Whether that's his authority over the storm to comment with a word. Whether his authority to provide meal for thousands with a word. His authority to heal, to cast out demons. His authority that as he teaches, he doesn't do like others and go to the rabbis for proof. But as he teaches, there's an innate authority in what he says. The religious leaders make a fool of themselves as you read it in our context, trying to trap him 
again and again. That happens again. He, he is too wise to be trapped by them. And by his courage, by his divine identity, he has authority. And so our text is going to look at that today only in a unique way of seeing his authority as it relates to the authority of the realm of the government or of the state. The text begins with really an odd pairing, an odd couple coming to Jesus. We don't want to pass right over it. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians. So it says that they sent them. They there is the Sanhedrin, that group of religious leaders. They send the Pharisees and the, San, the, Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in talks. It's an odd couple because they're on complete, they're enemies themselves, typically, complete ends of the political spectrum. I was trying to think of an example everyone would know. Like, I don't know, like, if it would be like, let's send Gavin Newsom and Marjorie Green, if those names ring a bell. Let's send them together and work something out. You're like, that's a weird couple. It, it, they're on complete ends of the spectrum, of the political spectrum, and they're coming. So you see, the, the Pharisees would have been <clears throat> loyalists to Judea. They would have been unwilling subjects to Rome who had annexed them. And so they would have kind of always been that unwilling subjects fighting uh, against the, the Roman authority. The Herodians on the other sides are Roman loyalists. They are loyal to the dynasty of Herod, thus Herodians. And so they are within Jerusalem, but looking, really it's a play uh, for authority and power from both of them. That from one end, the, the, the Herodians are trying to get authority and influence by allying with a power, a power to be. And, and on the other side, you have the Pharisees who are, are kind of trying to fight and maintain their authority by creating their own, little, their own little pocket of authority underneath of Rome. So they're fighting for authority. They're fighting for power. It's interesting, and I'm not going to get too often the weeds and left and right because I feel like it's hard to take something from that context and put it right in ours but it is interesting that both sides have a problem with Jesus because he's stepping on their toes <laughs> they're both maneuvering for authority in a different way and Jesus is a problem for them and so the two enemy groups have a bigger enemy and so they become friends they approach Jesus with this flattery it's almost humorous when you read at verse 14, they come to him, teacher, we know you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's this false buttering up flattery. I say false, even though everything they're declaring is absolutely true about our God and true about Jesus Christ. But it's that buttering up, that flattery. Anna does this to me. She just did it last night. We're like up in you know the room laying there reading and she wants ice water, but it's all the way downstairs. And apparently, I'm so good at making ice water. It's like the best ice water when I make it. And I'm easily flattered, so I go get it, because I'm so good at it, you wouldn't believe it. Um, but, that, you know, you're just so good at it. They come to Jesus in that way. You see verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? And then, in a completely brilliant moment, he asks them a question, makes a statement. 
And really, the whole understanding of Western government <laughs> is built on it. At least how a Christian is to understand our relationship with authority. He says, why do you put me to this? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Well, I guess I should read the question first. I'm sorry. I skipped over the question. Verse 14, anyone's opinion. The question that they come then to trap Jesus with is, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So that's the question that they're coming to entrap and to ensnare Jesus with. Should we pay taxes or not? A little background on the tax. So about 30 some years prior to this, probably 33 years prior to this, they decide, the governor decides, okay, we're going to place a poll tax on every citizen. And so they do a census. That's actually how the Christmas story starts in Luke 2. The Augustus decided that all the world should be taxed. So everyone head back to their home county so that they can take a census of the people. And Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. That's the background for this. And so it's a pull tax, and it's kind of the ultimate regressive tax in the sense of it doesn't matter how poor you are or how rich you are, everyone's paying this fee, the same fee. And the privilege you get is that you get to be alive underneath of Rome. It's just, an, you get to exist, therefore pay this tax. And so you can see, especially from nations that are annexed under Rome, you're not really loving Rome anyways, and now you get to pay them, and if you're someone of very little means, it's a huge deal to pay this tax just to exist. And there's also a bit of a theological problem with it as well, because the, the Caesars, the, those in, in emperors in that time, they always claimed a bit of divinity, and so paying this tax, is, is there a theological issue? Am I, am I saying, yes, I recognize him as divine? And so the, the Herodians, of course, would pay the tax happily. Pharisees don't want to pay the tax, but they know either way we've got Jesus here. Because if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, well, the Herodians are going to run to Rome and say, hey, you've got a revolutionary who's trying to get people not to pay their taxes, and Jesus is in trouble. If Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, well, then the Pharisees are going to run and say, hey, Jesus isn't loyal to, to Judea, and he thinks the emperor is divine. And so they think they have him entrapped and then snared there. All right, now back to where I jumped ahead a minute ago. So they say, Jesus says, okay, why put me to the test? In verse 15, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they bring him the coin. And they brought him one. He said, whose likeness and inscription is this? You can, a lot of archaeologists have dug them up. You can Google it and see it. But, but the coin at that time would be Caesar Tiberius has a raised relief on one side of this coin. And over the coin, in abbreviated terms, it says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus, the august one. It claims his divinity. You turn it over on the back of the coin, real large Pontifus Maximus, high priest. Claiming divinity, claiming to be the high priest. That, that, that's the coin that he is handed. That's the image. And so when they hand it to him and Jesus asks, whose image is on that coin? 
And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. What a remarkably profound statement that really serves for a lot of our understanding of how the realm of authority of the state and the authority of God, the authority of the church, how they exist, how Christians relate and exist. So I want to make five observations Some of them are real quick, so if one feels long, don't get nervous. Five observations, then, that we can take from this that hopefully will be helpful to us. First of all, human government is a legitimate authority. It is a legitimate authority. We often, I often, emphasize our citizenship that belongs to heaven, that we are exiles, that we belong to the kingdom of God. And it's right to emphasize that. That doesn't mean, though, that the government is not a legitimate authority. It's legitimate because God established it and God ordained it. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. So the government is a legitimate authority ordained by God. The government is a legitimate authority even when you think it's doing a bad job. Even when it's poorly run. And you might say, well, yeah, they don't know our government. (laughs) Well, look where Jesus is talking here. He's talking in Rome. It's not like they were just treating everyone with great honor and ease. I mean, this is a, a, a rough situation they're in. And he still says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's a legitimate government, even if you think they're doing a bad job. We have to remind ourselves that in every realm of authority, we think of the three realms of authority, the family, the church, and the state. Family, church, state. In every realm of authority, the people who are governing, those who lead, who rule, are sinners. Those who are of its members are sinners. And sometimes we, all of a sudden we forget, like, oh yeah, the government's full of sinners. It doesn't mean then that they have no legitimate authority. Any more than, believe it or not, your pastor is a sinner. And you're sinners. The dad, the mom are sinners. Kids are little sinners. And yet, Family, church, state, each one run by sinners, and yet each one a legitimate realm of authority. And since they're a legitimate realm of authority, they can make legitimate claims on you. Legislation, taxes. And we see that here in the text. Okay, second point. This one will probably be the longest of the points. The authority of God... And some of that I'm going to say the authority of the church. They're not the same, but we'll overlap them a little bit. The authority of God, the church, is distinct with some overlap than the authority of the state. Caveat, certainly God is the authority overall. There's not one square inch of this world over which he doesn't claim mine. 
He doesn't surrender his sovereign freedom. He doesn't set aside his magisterial authority because our government wants him to. All right? So I'm not questioning God's sovereign oversight and authority of all things. But I'm saying that the lordship of Jesus Christ is not exercised the same way in every realm of authority. Yes, he is God sovereign overall, but the lordship of Christ does, is not exercised in the same way in, of every realm of authority. You just think, I mean, he says this often, but John 18, 36, Jesus speaking, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. It's that the new heavens and the new earth when the declaration is made that the kingdom of man has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. <clears throat> so they're overlapping, some overlap, but distinct. So how do we see that distinction then? How does that play out? Well, obviously the authority of God is inherent. That means it belongs to him properly. It is of his essence that he is the authority. The authority of the church would be the same because its head is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone and he is its head. Now that authority is invested in a pastor, it's not inherent within me, but in Christ it is inherent. When you come to the government, they do not have inherent authority. Any authority that they have is invested to them. It is given to them by our creator God. The scripture is plain. He has established it. He has given it. It's a derived authority. It is not inherent. The state is never autonomous in its authority. So we begin to see, okay, there's a distinction. And then we see there is a distinction in that the lordship of Christ is exercised differently in the church than the state. There is a difference then in the mission or the goal of the church and the mission and goal of the state. What would be the mission of the church? To make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to do all that is written in God's word. We see in the Great Commission. The, the goal of the, the state, if you, again, you put these texts together, is the advancement of its members but it operates in a secular, in a civic realm, not in a spiritual realm. Does it make sense? It operates in a secular civic realm, not in the spiritual realm. And again, there's overlap, so I'm not saying that these never touch or anything like that. But the way that Jesus' lordship is exercised over them is differently. So they are called, the government is called to do three things primarily. Promote and preserve justice. Now we can argue, and it's a good argument, what exactly justice is and how that works out and all that. But that's what they're called to do, promote and preserve justice, promote and preserve good order, civil obedience, that, that there is order, orderliness, there is some predictability, that, that there is an environment in which people can succeed. And then preserve, promote and preserve the protection of its citizens. And since the mission is different, the tools are different. What are the tools of the church? 
the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom is, is how authority is exercised within the church to accomplish its mission and its goal. That Jesus, you know, the keys belong to him. He, he is the key and the keys belong to him. And he has given those to the, the prophets and to the, the apostles. And so there is a, a derived authority that comes from that. And the keys of the kingdom are word, sacrament, and discipline. That the authority, the tools to accomplish our mission, the authority of the church is exercised through thus saith the Lord. Through the means of grace at the table of a visual sign and representation, sealing promises to us, what God promises are ours by faith alone, what God has done for us. So we come and we rest in these things. They're signs, they're, they're pictures, they're seals for us of what God has done. And then discipline. And again, when I talk church discipline, it's not only just that little sliver at the end of excommunication, the idea of of putting someone outside the church in order to see their repentance. But the discipline that happens every week as the word is opened and, and it's proclaimed with authority and the spirit takes it and confronts and examines and comforts and eases and, and does all of that, that you're, there's discipline happening all along the way. Well, the, the tools of the realm of the state, the government to accomplish theirs, is the sword, legislation, and taxation. All right? And then in the end, we see because Jesus exercises authority perfectly, he is an absolute authority. Our submission to him needs to be absolute. As a church... My authority is certainly not absolute. I, I rule with an iron fist. No, come on, you know that. But thus saith the Lord, the word of God, Jesus Christ our head, is an absolute authority. We don't get to decide what we like, what we don't like, and just sort of create for ourselves you know, a, our own little way of doing things. No, Jesus Christ is the absolute authority. The government and their mission is not an absolute authority because they are susceptible to fail. So we have the right to critique. We have the right to demand justice, protection, that they, prevent, they create an environment for civil obedience. We have the right to demand that as citizens. Critique when they do poorly. And we'll look at it at the end, while well, we better be very careful about it, this civil disobedience, that they don't deserve our absolute obedience because their authority is down here. And when their authority starts to come in, and we'll look at it more specifically at the end, but their authority moves up and starts to interfere with the family or the church, those are realms of authority that are above. And from God, there is inherent, absolute authority, just derived authority from God for the church. Okay, continuing through. Hopefully you're seeing the reasoning as we're going through this. So point number three then, be a good citizen. 
Not because you think the government is honest and fair and looking out for your best interests all the time, but because Jesus tells us to be. You go on with Romans 13, therefore whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And to those who resist will incur judgment. Romans 13, 2. The state is a real authority in our life. It is a common grace from God for creation. One author, I think, talks about being good citizens. I think what was an analogy that was helpful for me is that we should consider ourselves as Christians, not in the promised land, but Christians in Babylon. That is that we are exiles and our first allegiance is always to God. And yet we work for the peace of the city. We are called to be good neighbors and to see the well-being of our neighbor. And our neighbor, we can argue who that is, but it's the, the face in front of you that represents humanity that you come in contact with that needs your help. All right? We are a city within a city. Okay, point number four, after be a good citizen. Hopefully you're tracking, hopefully you agree with most of it. I'm sure people will differ one way or the other a little bit. But these principles are rising out of scripture, so we need to deal with them. Next, fourth, that our allegiance to God and to country are not inherently incompatible. Allegiance to God and allegiance to the state are not inherently incompatible. That is, you do not necessarily have to choose between the two. Now, there will be times when you do, and there are many people who have a government where they are choosing between the two. But they are not inherently incompatible. Because, again, there's different distinct realms that that experience the lordship of Christ in a different way, so they have different mission and uses different tools, so they are not inherently incompatible. Duties to the state do not necessarily infringe upon our duties to God. All right, now there are certainly exceptions, but we would hope that is kind of the normal state. And then now five. Last point, we owe absolute allegiance to God. We owe absolute allegiance to God. The state is not divine. (laughs) Civil disobedience at moments is proper and even demanded when the state conflicts with the Lord. Again, not because you don't like it, Not because you think they're bad people. Not because they're not doing the same thing that the church is doing. But when they ask you to violate a command of God or to do an immoral act, then civil civil disobedience would be appropriate. We see that in Acts chapter 4 and 5 after the uh, Pentecost. The disciples are preaching. They're brought before the court. They said, you're violating what we have told you to do. Peter confesses for all the apostles like he normally speaks for them. And he says, we must obey God rather than man. All right. 
And this is a different sermon than how I normally preach. But as we come into a political season, and I have to admit, even as I prayed this morning, like I don't often pray, even though we're told to, I don't often pray for the government, for presidents. You probably pick it up, and it's probably not a good thing. Is my view towards government typically is just completely cynical. I don't trust any of them, and I think they treat us like dummies. <laughs> that doesn't mean I get to be a bad citizen. It doesn't mean because I like or don't like whoever happens to be elected to a position that I can get to decide whether they're my president or not, whether they're my governor or not, and I can just cast it off. But I also don't operate within the church and build friendships and unity around a shared hope and trust in any government official. And so hopefully we can navigate through political times not being nasty, but also not just getting so caught up that our hopes rise and fall on... Whoever is elected, I was going to say whichever 80-year-old is elected, but maybe that goes too far. Um, So we swing back around. What's the point then? Jesus is driving here home there. Some principles, some observations we can think about for the realm of authority, the, the authority in the realm of the state, how we relate to that as Christians. Well, we return to his answer here. And he asked, whose likeness and inscription is it? And they said, Caesar's. If it's got Caesar's image on it, then who does it belong to? Caesar. Well, I would say, where is God's image? It is stamped on every single one of you. It is stamped on me. And he breathes into us the breath of life, an immortal soul. We bear the image of God. And if for the image of the Caesar is, it belongs to Caesar. Two things that Jesus does in his answer. First, he puts a clear distinction that Caesar is not divine. <laughs> He's not your high priest. There might be a coin with his image. Okay, you know what belongs to him? That coin. But I am God. <laughs> The divine has stamped his image on you. So you know what belongs to God? The whole of your life. Your absolute allegiance and obedience. Because his image is stamped upon you. You belong to him. And so in saying, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, he's, he's making that clear distinction. There is a very limited realm over which Caesar has an authority in your life, but it's a real authority. But but I am stamped on you. You are made in my image. Your whole life belongs to me. And what's more, I've sent my son, Jesus Christ, and he has bought you with a price. He has redeemed you. He has paid for you. You belong to him. And what's more, I've given you my spirit and through my living word, he is producing in you, changing you into the likeness, the image of my son. And he's saying, okay, let's get our priorities straight here. The real question isn't, you know, do I give a coin to 
Caesar. There's a, that's a, such a low secondary question to what do I owe my God? And the answer inferred is you owe him the whole of your life. We can get caught up in what we owe government and the taxes. I mean, no one loves taxes, right? I mean, whatever. You, you get caught up in that. But what is it that you're holding back from the absolute authority of God? The application is the same as last week. Your time, your life, your relationships, your weekends, your money, it belongs to God. The whole of your life does. And his stamp, his image upon you, is why he can claim it. Okay. So in a single sentence, Jesus demolishes the trick, the trap, (laughs) that the Pharisees are trying to set for him, that the Herodians are trying to set for him. In there, he lays such an important groundwork for how we understand, as a Christian, we are to relate to the state and authority. But in the end, distances his realm of authority so far above that of the state and demands your absolute allegiance based on him as your creator, based on Christ as your redeemer, Christ on the spirit as your sanctifier. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be good citizens. Lord, where it's not necessary that there's competing loyalties, that we would be work for the good of the city, for the good of our neighbor. Lord, more than that, we want to be your children that have humility in, in valid realms of authority that you have created, but have absolute allegiance, courage to obey you. Lord, I pray that that would be on our minds, that as Christians we would understand and we would navigate each realm of authority, that fathers and mothers and children, we would navigate that well, do what we're called to with the tools you've given us, the church, as pastors and elders, deacons, as members. Lord, we would navigate that well with the tools you've given us. And again, as citizens under a local, a state, a federal government, Lord, that we would navigate that well. Lord, that they would do their job with the tools that you have given them. We would be good citizens. Lord, but we are exiles indeed. And so through it all, our prayer is even so, Lord Jesus, come. Establish fully and finally your kingdom. Give you just a moment of thoughtfulness.